0: because <laughs> he Hello, Uh, welcome to, sounds good, right? Can you hear me? Awesome. Uh, Sounds great. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the penultimate event in uh, the fall 2012 uh, new writing series. Uh, Thanks to the Dean's Office of Arts and Humanities for the support of our series. And um, I'll remind you that we're being uh, reincarnated, recorded uh, today. (laughs) And... uh, Constantly in a state of reincarnation. Uh, and so uh, please turn your phones off. These, uh, these recordings are available in the, um, in the library by podcast through the Archive for New Poetry. So um, give it a listen. It's going to be great. Uh, I'm not introducing Cole. Uh, we have Kendall Grady, MFA student, who um, is going to walk up here promptly. Thanks. Thank you, Ben. The cover of Cole Swenson's Ghost, her 2004 book of poems, features an art installation by Christo and Jean Claude entitled Running Fence. This hedge of white fabric, filtered light, shaped wind, haunted 25 miles of California in 1976. Cole Swenson's poems manifest themselves as permeable borders, amoebic landscapes, transparent structures zigzagging before the body like wormholes in Richard Kelly's cult classic, Donnie Darko. Cole Swenson's poems are reminders that following a line forever is the same as the arc of one colossal circle. Her poems are pastoral in the sense that they are intimate with their environment, autumnal in the relentless inspection of the ghost in every machine. Self-sufficient nodes in networks, like a spent engine falling from a rocket and reintroducing itself to the atmosphere. Swenson is Paul Cezanne, returning to paint Mount Saint-Victory until it anticipates cubism, cranes its neck toward every angle at once. Yes, Swenson's poems are desirous, and they understand that, as Deleuze and Guattari write, desire is a machine, and the object of desire is another machine connected to it. Swenson works her poems like theremins, signaling frequency and amplitude with her affective touch. In The New World, Swenson records the song. It goes, if in pieces we are accurate, here the we accrues. Swenson's poems take their own advice from the history of artificial ice. Go from water to gold in a single leap, and the ice will lie suspended in between. Cole Swenson is a hovering alchemist, transforming language, genre, medium, time. In her poems, the happy accident of diction-driven lyricism is not without deliberation, the familiar not without beauty, children not without wisdom. Swenson does as painting does, mixing language on the page, exposing the primary, the secondary, the muddied indefinites. In Swenson's poems, objects become like weather and hands, hands move like water and light. Light redistributes itself below doors in parks, parks like dioramas, performative space, the secret viscosity of glass. These are our lands and the cities and the life forms that live there and the things they invent and all their dreams. I should pause here and tell you what you might already know. Nicole Swenson is the recipient of numerous prestigious awards, including two Pushcart prizes, a National Poetry Series selection, National Book Award finalist, and Guggenheim Fellowship, to name but a few. The most recent of her 14 books of poetry include Gravesend, published this past July by the University of California Press, and Greensward, published in 2010 by Ugly Duckling. Swanson is also a prolific editor and translator of art criticism and contemporary writing from the French, for which she received the 2004 Penn USA Award for Literary Translation. A longtime faculty member of the IRA Writers Workshop, Swenson is currently professor of literary arts at Brown University. But what I want to tell you is more personal. How Swenson's poems give me pause in the anxious movement toward an internet of things, that stubborn attachment of a virtual shadow to everything I touch, until I fear that, like Peter Pan, I can never change, and like King Midas, I can never forget. Swenson's poems are cellular and atmospheric. Linguistic and conceptual Seeing and meditation The constant motion of a fish And a tap on the glass They are complex but not fragile And they give me courage So to Cole Swenson I'd like to say thank you and welcome
1: I I think we should quit right here Because it's not going to get better than that Thank you, Kendall. That was just really wonderful. Um, and thank you, Ben, and everyone else, for bringing me here. It's just a delight to be here and great to see the place. Um, I'm going to read three different things. Um, I'm going to start with Gravesend and then read a little bit from another book that just came out a, a very small book called Stella, and then read some new work. So, um, Gravesend is, again, about ghosts. And uh, I, I started it thinking about, I was thinking about ghosts as manifestations of collective grief and guilt. And this was, I started working on it right after we'd gone into the, uh, the second Gulf War in 2003. And I wasn't trying to address that event particularly or specifically, but I was thinking a lot about the kind of public. Um, ghost manufactory we seem to be becoming, uh, both in terms of that collective grief, the collective guilt, and also the more literal, if ghosts do exist, of uh, being involved in so many people's deaths. Um, Part of the book tries to figure out what a ghost is, uh, and this is a poem that, that talks about that. A ghost erodes the line between being and place Becomes the place of being time. And so the house turns in the snow, is why a ghost always has the architecture of a storm. The architect tore down room after room until the sound stopped. A ghost is one among the ages at the edge of a cliff, empty sails on the bay, even when a ship or the house moves off in fog asks you out loud to let the stranger in. I was also got really interested in the way that apparitions change across time, how different the ghosts of antiquity were from the ghosts of the Middle Ages, were from the ghosts of the 19th century, uh, and we are still kind of on that wave. We're still dealing with our 19th century ghosts. Um, And one of the things that really intrigued me About them is that our ghosts are almost always strangers, whereas that was not true before. And so, what happened that separated us from uh, the dead who haunt us? Uh, This piece is called History. In Augustine's time, it was more likely the living who reached out to touch nothing, which, brokenhearted, the dead were thought to know everything suspended in the middle of the story, she would wake up stretching her arms out so far they would hurt. And still the dead remain indeterminate and cold. And Augustine had to tell them, no, and God is slow, and the face you see at the window is your own from a long way off, which is what it's like to be dead. Augustine went so far as to write an essay titled, How to Help the Dead, which held a candle in the burning hand as the cradle Went up in snow. I also collected ghost stories from people that I knew. And I would just ask people, um, have you ever seen a ghost? And I got these marvelous, marvelous ghost stories. They were really fun. And I was intrigued by the difference between the literary ghost story and the personal. They had nothing to do with each other. And one thing that struck me again and again was that the actual ghost stories, the recountings, had no point. Whereas literary ghost stories always have a moral point. (laughs) Not a single one of the actual recountings did. They were just, there it was. And this is is one of them. Uh, Someone had uh, heard his grandfather's voice in a house. Walking through... I was walking through. My grandfather called. It was a long way across. He said, I ran like mad. It was his. I knew the house was alone. I knew the face that held had opened the door. I had known I had wanted on hearing his own and ran back up the hill as I slammed the door and then I slammed the door. A ghost is a hearing, is a calling, and every gesture that builds the pressure that then, through unknowing, becomes in pieces the inner ether, so larger grows the mansion and larger grows the wind, undid. And the child who ran up the hill is an older man telling a story that is simply a story he lived. A face is always a ghost, It's what we lost on a ship or forest or Everest or once every face is the ghost of an instant. Behind every face, other faces pass like actors behind a screen, like time, they go from right to left, like time, they're heading west. Will one along a crowded road become or seem to be all of them and they unfold? A face is lined with and within its own dawn, Now, and in particular, the eyes, far from being windows on the soul, are handed down and must be worn exactly as received and must be returned. The Beginnings of the Modern Era It wasn't until the ghost story became a genre that ghosts became strangers, denied as they were by a romantic flagrant so stylized it found itself poised on the tip of a letter opener and the man holding it in his hand silhouetted from the back on a promontory over a crevasse which makes his sister die of music or the ghost is reduced to an overpowering smell of the sea and only she can hear it what we've inherited, fletcher of tongues Thin in the wind, who blinded by now a ghost in fingers is touching them empty of all its burning. And we claim we never knew them living, which gets lost in living. And thus the Phaeton stopped to pick him up and went on to plunge over the cliff just as it had done in all its lost. Every night for the past 50 years, the ghost ship, the phantom train, the cathedral fear... And how right we are To claim it isn't ours Though it leaves them stranded Or we abandon Or we a screw in a door Nailed shut It isn't our fault Uh, The book is titled Grave's End After the city At the mouth of the Thames Where the Thames joins the channel And I was always Intrigued by that name And, you know, is it Is it gruesome, is it um, morbid, or is it, on the contrary, hopeful? Is it saying that the grave has an end, that there's a kind of rebirth? And it's always struck me that that ghosts are similar, potentially hopeful symbols. Uh, If ghosts are real, uh, then we know it doesn't all end. We do not go to dust. So I spent a few days in Gravesend, (laughs) talking to people about how it got its name. And it was it, it was a really wonderful, fun trip. Um, and these are some of the poems that came out of it. Grave's End. My ended grove, my threaded shriek, drawn along by swans straining at the same. Did you fall off the edge and which home carved from an egg? As if a little trap door slowly spread through every room ever this ready the dead are hauling a circus behind them in flames gravesend gravesend is named after mr silvanius grave who in 1123 opened a store here at the end of the road leading from london to the sea no london does not go to the sea So Gravesend is named after Mr. Albert Graves, who established a hotel at the point that boats turned in from the channel to go up the Thames. No, he is dead. And Gravesend is named for a preacher, Euphonius Graves by name, who fell off a cliff one night at just this spot. There are those who say the waves carried him off ablaze. They are wrong. Once we dreamt that a grave had an end, that a life didn't just keep on growing and growing until the grave stretched from here to its clearance. No, a grave is a grievance. From the 17th through the 19th centuries, Gravesend was a principal harbor from which emigrants left England for Australia or North or South America, South Africa and India. It was a door through which people fell into the sea. I never returned. Gravesend swings back and forth like a window in the wind it is named for the fact that you never returned it bears the name of a man who disappeared in plain sight in the town square on a sunny day Gravesend the name Gravesend comes from the words grafsham meaning the place at the end of the grove is a nave and you walk out into the sun, and the trees surround the things left behind. A grave clears the air. Gravesend is recorded in the Doomsday Book, 1086, called Gravesham, which meant the home of a reeve or a lord, of a sleeve or a word, of a team headed toward the sill of a window or a door. Gravesend is so named because at the height of the plague they brought the bodies out here and threw them into the sea. It wasn't as callous as it sounds for by then the grove was over and the sleeve a town and someone had learned how to fashion a deadbolt from a series of thumbs and so we dream to the sound, the slip, the click, the something that won't ever quite shut. They blame the plague, the heart, the age. A grave is a door laid flat in the earth worked into a hinge which articulates a gulf without being a bridge. Um, I was also I was really interested in this fact that Gravesend was such a prominent port and really was the port through which more people emigrated from England for several centuries than anywhere else. And it, it seemed such a kind of ironic title um, for a town because... At that time, it really was the end of one life and the beginning of the other. But since many of those people who were emigrating were emigrating to colonies to become colonists to effectively kill other cultures, and in the process, many people who had already been living in those places, there seemed an irony to that, too. It's really kind of sad. Um, And I was particularly intrigued to learn that Pocahontas not only visited Gravesend, but she died there. Pocahontas, 1595, Powhatan Confederacy, 1616, Gravesend, England. So Pocahontas, lost in the graveyard, said to her husband, So soften, the new world is an edge. And returning, she turned around and saw him becoming someone who used to live where she was dying. Pocahontas once threw herself on the body of Captain John Smith to save him, then married his colleague, John Rolfe, a few years later. From the 17th to the 19th centuries, thousands and thousands of ships. Is a windmill or threshold, a guild hall or sword hilt? Is a window sill struck by lightning, the huge sails billowing out, and the curtains? I'm at that stage in life, and then all that dancing on water. Pocahontas died in Gravesend at the age of 22. She was there to catch a boat back to Virginia with her husband and child who were going home. So Pocahontas lost in the graveyard a small charm that once depended from a chain around her ankle is one way to figure the cost to her eyesight, to her continually flagrant insistence upon dying as a demonstration of the central role of irony in history. After all, that departure The first Native American ever to visit Europe stayed forever. A fire in 1727 destroyed the parish records, which included the location of Pocahontas' grave. By nature, a door is a gap, but a ceiling wouldn't be offered in pieces or things that can't be divided. One cannot, for instance, offer another a piece of grief or of survival. And um, it does seem that she was the first um, Native American ever to visit um, the New World. There had been many, starting with Columbus, and they think, based on DNA evidence, that starting with the Norsemen, um, people had been captured and kidnapped and brought back to the New World. And um, that's certainly recorded all through, um, from Columbus on. But um, Pocahontas seems to have been the first one to say, hey, I'd like to go visit. I'd like to go see that place. (laughs) And so I was really touched by this this kind of agency that seemed to be manifest there. She was also used somewhat as a diplomatic tool in that she was the daughter of a very high-ranking Powhatan chief and was married to John Rolfe, who was relatively high-ranking in the colony there. So the idea was that she could be this natural liaison between the two. Um, But she died instead. Um, Gravesend is in in Kent, and so I got very interested in the ghost stories of the Kentish countryside. Kent in the grounds of Bayham Abbey, in a garden designed by Repton, a procession of monks just about dusk or just after darkness has fallen, go walking, or there was no sadness just a simple fold in time. One must be for others a reason to live. Often it is said the presence of a ghost is signaled by illogical cold. Lord Halifax noted it when investigating the laughing man of Rotham who strode into his brother's room and murdered him night after night to the horror of the maid who a century later wedged a chair against the door and watched him disappear. There is no cure, anything and that cough you have madame once there was a fire every friday the 13th and once there was a death that seemed to deserve it but that was an illusion once there was a death but that was illusory too and all over kent someone is still heading up the stairs lighting the way with a match um, i'll end with a a few Uh, from the last section of the book, the three sections of the book are organized around interviews and and the series of interviews. They were very brief interviews. I talked to a lot of people. Um, This last one was, um, what do you think a ghost is? And do you ever think you'll be one? And that was, the variety of answers was just really, really wonderful. Whole Ghost. From one horizon to the other, who counted their faces all in attendance, a whole country stained like a portrait into a sheet, held up to the light. Ghosts appear in place of whatever a given people will not face. There are days the entire sky is a ghost, though again, it's not necessarily what you'd think. Bright sun, full of birds, you're in a park, and everything in sight is alive. Um, I think I will read the very brief uh, interview thing interview series three. What do you think ghosts are do you ever th- do you think you 'll ever be one i don 't know. I think they're communication simply that a ghost is simply a connection, and then she goes on to mention some rather odd occurrences, hundreds of red beetles all over the kitchen the day her mother died, and for a year after her son in law 's death She kept seeing his car go by. Do I ever think I'll be one? I'd like to be. It seems, if nothing else, like a way to get on with it. I think they're entities stuck in time. We, the living, pass right on through it, along it, along with it. And then in in dying, if all goes well, we pass out of it. But ghosts get stuck, locked, are left half in and half out. It hurts. Become one? I hope not. What is a ghost? It's something that hides behind doors, said without irony. Ghosts lurk. That is their defining quality. Will I ever be one? Quite possibly. (laughs) A ghost is that which exceeds the four elements, that what will not fit within, which suggests them as excess, which has by definition nowhere to go, what might show up anywhere, a little startled, a shade persistent, an average shadow that doesn't move with the sun. Will I ever become one? Certainly not. A ghost is that which refuses to go on. They're comfortable with death. Or a ghost is burned into the sky as an image is burned onto the retina of an eye. It was an ne- it was an accident, or at least incidental. It was nothing special, but stayed too long, and so remained emblazoned on a certain patch of air, annealed there watching, for instance, for a ship to sail into view. They are laws of physics caught at that fractional moment of suspension that all laws pass through as they're changing. Yes, I think the laws of physics change all the time, but because we're completely bound by them, we can't remember their ever having been different. However, we can perceive the glitches that persist if the revision isn't fast enough, and sometimes, no doubt, we are the glitch and have no idea of it. What is a ghost? It's tangled electricity. It's a radiogram of the air, an X-ray of the sky. What is a ghost? Well, that's tantamount to asking what you think the present is. We have a much clearer take on both the past and the future than we do on the present. It remains a gap between two clarities, a void, and as such, it can't possibly make sense, at which point we must admit that we are lacking crucial information on our own state and therefore can't even begin to comment on the state of other entities that are not attached to the present, even though they may be visible from it. Will I ever be one? I might very well be one now, if viewed from another state. I get up and turn on the light. A ghost is one life layered upon another that has not yet been named. A ghost is a crossroads, now mobile, as in the Middle Ages, avoided at night, and the air thickening there, but the intersection itself, invisible up close, and suddenly warm and at home. A ghost is a broken window, through the window, excuse me, a ghost is a broken window, though the window does not end the room, it only breaks the seal. What is a ghost? It's the spirit returning to exact revenge. Will I, will I return? I don't know. I suppose it will depend on how much pain I'm in. A ghost bit a child on the tip of her thumb and the child replaced the sun. It seems that great emotion disrupts the structure that makes time and space appear separate. Or a ghost is a knot in the otherwise smooth flow of time, an electrical storm in a jewelry box, grief perfectly aligned. And sometimes a ghost is a shared thing, Sometimes the entire population of a city or country will just happen to look into the mirror at the same time, and from then on there was a city in the sky, as all cities are if we consider that the sky reaches to the ground, and this city too thought it was alive, and the candles walked off by themselves. Ghosts are houses. The places we exceed ourselves can live. And every house is a guest. I live in an old one. I watch it move. I am moved, I say, at inappropriate times, and then must say, I'm sorry, though not to whom. I'll end with this one. Who walked across water? Who gathered there over? A gathering mist is a migration. They went down just off the coast, and sometimes almost an army balanced out there on the waves, but in rags and flagrant in wind. Legend claims that on calm nights, you can hear their footsteps from the cliff. A soft howl. The children are wading out past the horizon. He was sailing alone, returning late, when he saw an army of children dressed in rage walking over the sea on their hands. And this wasn't intentional, but um, this other book that just came out is called Stella, and that, of course, is a funereal monument. So um, I'm planning on writing something really happy soon. (laughs) It's um, 30 30 very short poems, and I'm going to read the last section. It's... um, the entire poem simply describes a man walking across a field. If walking presumes a crossing, was often what could have been waking, woke up within or of morning, which is always a form of counting, softening the walking into something by hand. Nor anybody else seen at such a certain angle. They stand in the light and you count them, making them larger. The diamond on a finger Splinters the light And that which enters the eye Makes it older So deepen the green And suffer the capture As the field gets wider The man seems to float Slightly backward Which answered A line of trees Silhouetted at the top of a ridge Tends to wander in answer Takes over the wanderer Like any point that can be graft Cannot quite yet be misplaced placed a needle or similar small calling in the center of that which is growing despite the itinerant nature unleashed star walk across the night star field the night a given give the point the farthest the superstitious that the third star seen must align that a dime found on the street is the dead who speak or spoken by who find The night shell-stormed, curled tight, and light pours from broken to breaking. Wrap it all up carefully. The silver is streaking into brittle air, cut or they're cut loose. Or vertigo, itself the air. There are small hands also in a pattern, becoming scattered. The stiff wind shifts the axes, chances this other world that almost visits. An empty glass Standing in the light like crystal, I cut myself on air, open air, the kind that finds its difference here erased. And it follows, that one follows one, is always an empty room. Hammershoy made them by hand as they were walking out of the picture. We see them from the back, and we see that the back is an empty room that you can see down through its layers, its history, it's said. To walk several miles through a single house without passing through a doorway, archway, or window is the nature of an empty house. The man crossing the field is seen from the back, the crossing back over, come over back comer. Walking along the line of trees in the field, they become indistinct, trees and man. Land carved from the heart of the land, and the two of them walking away, a direction determined by the living who can't. Whose edges are the principle of division, on one side of the ocean the sea pulls back, and a man is walking out among thousands of sparkling points, which once in his hands, which thus become hands, are able to close Walking is an extension of the body, as is dying, a way of walking into and all the rooms you've ever slept in superimposed. There's only one missing. Its incidental disappearance is just that, an incident in the street through which you just happen to be walking, and you walk on, but still it has come to be with you. Have some among the rest, have some that come back torn, Ascent across the grass, picking distance out of a long list, having a long list of things that the body can never be, disappear in a blink of air, and you watch there the tiny fold. As only body sways beneath the force received as is, an opening which is not to be inhabited by them as only the dead can, to be lived in and softly walking with them inside, doing the walking and this next piece is happier, I promise Uh, it's a a series that I'm just finishing, it's obsessively repetitive um, but that was part of the fun Um, it's landscapes, I think of it as landscapes taken out of train windows and so part of the repetition is based on the fact that I was often going through very similar countrysides Um, and I've always been kind of frustrated that I can't or poets can't do what painters can do. We can't have that, that instantaneity, and above all, we can't do serial work. If you do serial work, you bore people to death, um, and so this was kind of an attempt to try and figure out whether I could do something um, that amounted to serial work. Um, And it was also accompanied by photographs because I was at times taking photographs um, out the windows. And most of the trains were uh, bullet trains. And so the landscapes get blurred in some really, really interesting ways. Um, And one of the repeated images of the the photographs uh, and and of the poems is a line of trees uh, silhouetted along a ridge. And I pick these kind of at random, and they, some take place at night, some take place in, uh, in the winter, and some take place in the summer. Six or seven buildings and there's six or seven bare trees falling in and into the falling distance, effect of noon, an odd speed under winter air, rushing green, cows in place as the green rushes past, several flat ponds separated only by their banks, And their trees turn blue Even the edges The edges are even Even precise All water is necessarily precise And as awake as any may come One against its sharpened state Mistletoe crowding the emptiness Of the empty branches of emptied trees Slicing evenly the thin light Shredding the ribbons of thin light to strings Town arranged along its river its own owning to ever, benches on passing water, the passing softer, and slows the afternoon, sifted willow, woman combing her hand through the water behind her on a bench, a man is reading the paper. Great white house in a hurl of green, and the gray is white in the house that holds great in its distance of pillars, the slate of its inward will, the roof of sky, and so the sky goes slate in sudden birds, solid birds, holding place, holding on in the white. The long, broad river winds off, turns, and turns back on itself, copper in muscle, muscle in fact, in lead was a mirror, and the light went off, and made a river of ash. The ashes of water walked over the meadow, like the line of bare poplars walks over the field, slow, mist, walking also a man who walks faster than trees in his gray mist, this more intimate winter into which is walking and the trees recede. Quiet lights the often fog and can't you say exactly where December evens the gray wash, gray and new green that could have been rain, a long line of greenhouses and small boats tied up along a bank, young plants and under white canvas arches until another river passes, fewer boats and a longer, a house built for summer will rain upon rain. And now only a river. Excuse me, that's not right. And only now a river. Running aground green And flat boats among pollarded trees Bare of leaves More greenhouses Making small plants making color Or missing a pane of the missing greenhouse Tarnished silver in the missing sun These are not windows above Old stone building on a hill already wait, Is still some hill A hill taller than And stone blind until gray until white they felled the trees and left them lined up side by side, a small white bird, a lamp in the other lost, and another, and then each one of the hundred yards apart, lighting the length of the river, causing dark. White gates standing open, open directly onto the river, river a bridge and brick and stone and matching white boat. The boat takes part creates an equation that stands between boat and gate, an equivalence sealed by a white horse running toward a white house, its front door open in the rain. The sun is a thrush, thrust up against the falling pail, is falling into sheets. It falls in and sees through, sheets of brittle light on some series of birds, cold in trees, In three rows of lines of trees slipping past like passing screens, the screens slip on vast thin sheets of ancient rain of walls of doors. You slide the screens to change the world, which yet retains its lines of trees and remains migrating trees through a heap of rain. Thank you.
0: Would be happy to, sure. I think you would be happy to answer. Questions.
1: I they don't know that I have the answers, but I would be happy
0: to to try. We lit up the audience.
1: Okay. Good. Good. I have to put my glasses on to see what's going on out there. Questions? Yeah. John. But before you started, um, the reading
0: you mentioned, uh, where you said, ask the question, what separate, or what happened that separated ourselves from within the contest, um, and I guess. My reading of um, work like, leads me with this question of like, as we make ghost strangers, we still make them. Um, and why do we need this connection to what was once living? Um, if not, we might hope to apologize for what we've already done, what's already happened, um, and for how we have harmed each other as people. Um, mm-hmm. I guess, uh, so, I, my thought is, like, our grief might be an effort to apologize for our situation, which is bigger than us and still within us. Like, as a ghost might be a house that we might Live in, and still in my at the same time. Um, my biggest question is like, who
1: are we apologizing to? Yeah, I think that's a really, really great way to think about it. And it also makes one think, how discreet are people? Does the apology need to be addressed directly or is the apology a much greater thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, that we're apologizing to time, to ourselves. And I think that gesture of apology is, I think, is a really great way to see ghosts. And to say it immediately makes me think that we are in the habit of thinking of, you know, to apologize is very much a directed event, and perhaps the ghost is the apology that cannot be directed and that, that sees, in fact, uh, that it's, we're apologizing to life and that idea, too, that the ghost it, it might itself be an apology for having to leave life. And I really like the way you're thinking about those things. It's really great. Yeah? I have a more technical question about something you said. Uh, you said that uh, you were sorry that, that poets can't do what painters can do. They can't do instantaneity I didn't say that right. And they can't do the serial, which I wonder how you're using the word serial because I'm having my students write serial poems, as in long poems in sections, which I know you probably do too. I think you do, yeah. Jack Spicer and et cetera, et cetera. So how are you
0: using the word?
1: Great, and I think I'm supposed to repeat the question. So um, that, that is how are you using the word serial, and um, how how does that connect? Um, I'm thinking of it in the exact, almost exact repetition. That just tweaks slightly, or and the Cezanne, Mont saint Victoire would be a great series to think of, where you know he's looking at the same, and each one is incredibly different, and each one is incredibly necessary, and and yet they they are just slightly different, and we can't. If, if I wrote the same paragraph over and over and changed just, I mean it's tempting. <laughs> Gertrude Stein did it, um, <laughs> but it it just we can't quite do it. So. Um, and you're right, I write a lot of things that are serial in the way that's often used in poetry to say a developmental sequence, each part of which is not, cannot stand alone, or each part of which at least so looks forward and back that it creates a chain. Um, but that combination that painting can get of the instantaneity of having it all right there at once and that sort of time denying move, and at the same time, Incorporate time through this peculiar kind of repetition um, is just something that I so enjoy in painting and in other visual art. I I once got to see Rodin's three uh, full-scale sculptures of the Kiss, all right in a row and on an angle, and, and that kind of repetition was just like an amazing, amazing thing. Um, and I say I just don't think if I lined up three exact paragraphs. <laughs>
0: Yeah. question and that's about the interviews that you conducted in Gravesend and I'm curious did you tape them did you tape these interviews and then how much of what you were reading was a verbatim kind of transcription or how much of it did you modify to add you know um, metrical patterns or assonance consonants and consonance and I'm not going to lie, you stole my question. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, sir, you stole my question. <laughs> and, and another part of it is, if you did tape them, what did you tell the people first that you were going to be doing with it, that you were writing a poem, or that you were a reporter, or just an American yeah. who... Yeah, <laughs> just had some weird questions I'd like to ask. Yeah. yeah,
1: So the question was, with the interviews, did I tape them? and then how much of what is in there is verbatim, and, and how did I set it up with the people? Um, so none of it is at all verbatim. And, and I, um, most of the people for the first and third interviews, one, the interviews were very short. Each one was simply two questions. Have you ever seen a ghost? And uh, if so, were you frightened for the first one? And then uh, how did Gravesend get its name? And uh, what do you think about that name? And then the, um, what do you think a ghost is, and do you think you will ever be one? And so for the first and third, they were all people I knew, and people who knew that I was working on the project. Um, so and pretty much exclusively, many, most of them were poets, actually, um, though a few people, no, that's not true, there were lots of people out, outside of it. For um, the people in Gravesend, I told them I was writing a book, and I... The first, I had set that up, that one up first to um, to be the question. You know, how do you feel about the name Gravesend? How does it how does it feel to live in a town with that name? And when that just like flopped several times in a row, I suddenly thought, Wait a minute! I'm a stranger asking English people how they feel about something. You know, this is not likely to work. So I changed it to simply the How did Gravesend get its name? And I just got such wonderful, wonderful stories, and uh, all of which were wrong except for one, um, but they were really, really enjoyable to hear, and I started out, I had three days um, and three nights in this town, and so I was going to, like, I, I tried engaging people in the post office line or at a cafe, finally I realized again, like, why didn't I think of this sooner? The only place I was really going to get people talking was a pub, and so I spent three days in the pubs of Grey's End, one of the the best pubs there is the Three Dawes, which is a very famous pub because it shows up in Dickens in a couple books in, in particular in Great Expectations. And um, the it's supposedly the oldest pub on the Thames, and the ghost stories that come out of that building were just really, really fun. And the owner of... I was chatting with the woman behind the bar at a certain point, and she was telling me about... Yeah, I'm, you know, closing up at night sometimes, and I'll hear. I know I'm the only one in the building, and I'll hear someone walking. It's definitely footsteps. And, and the owner, Lester, came up behind her and, she, "You knock it off! That is, there are no ghosts here." And um, he was the one who told me that what turns out to be the real origin of the name is um, de Sham which meant the home of the sheriff. Um, and it's it's listed in the Doomsday Book as Grasstown. And over the years, centuries, it just got corrupted into that other so but it was it was such a pleasurable experience to be talking to people about about these things and getting these great stories it's really, really fun. yeah. That's a great question. So, um, and it, it, I'm going to paraphrase it badly. But how does one make the distinction between the sort of um, heredity of ghosts as creepy, fearful, etc., and a more uh, humanized version, a more a warmer version? And I think it, it's because I, I, as I was writing, it, as I say, I started out with this kind of abstract social idea about collective fear and collective uh, grief that can't be manifest in any other way. It kind of shows up outside of ourselves, that it isn't attached to any one person. But in the process of writing it, I realized that I actually have a really warm feeling about ghosts and that they don't seem to me particularly creepy. Um, Some of these were a few years ago uh, put into a chapbook which was titled Ghosts Are Hope, and that for me, that there, that idea that there's something hopeful, potentially hopeful in that, seemed seemed important. So, also, I was doing a lot of reading of ghost stories for from all periods in Western history, and I chose to stick with the West because I wanted to deal with this idea of colonization and the the kind of exporting of death through the colonializing expansion that went through Gravesend. Um, but also, I think that a lot of ghost stories do exactly that. They humanize in a certain sense because there is a, a moral to the story. It's upholding a moral or an ethical order. So you've got uh, a sense of um, social necessity. That often, you know, it's um, upholding inheritance rights or it's addressing a wrong or. Something like that. So at its base, it's nothing about death. It's about guaranteeing the right living among the living. So I think that. Yeah. No, you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the question was, have you ever thought about? Or have I ever thought about um, the idea of not uh, as a way of getting a collectivity to live a a more rightful life? And I think absolutely that that that's that, and I think that's what happens with ghost stories. Um, as I was just saying, that that the ghost stories are actually not about the dead, and in that same way. There's a way in which ghosts maybe are not about the dead, but are about the living and give the living an opportunity to reflect on what it is to be alive. And I think we, we are so immersed in, it's like the idea of the laws of of physics um, may be changing. We don't know. But we are so immersed in them that we if they changed every hour, we wouldn't know because we're completely bound by them and similarly, we're completely bound by life and so can we really think about what life is unless we do it from outside of it and there is no way, without making it permanent, that we can get outside of life and so is the ghost perhaps a way of getting outside of life to look back at life from a different perspective and reassess it's its values and our actions in it
0: yeah, I, I was thinking about, you about western um, not, not other part of the because bible is because a holy ghost
1: yeah sort of- yeah and the it's ghosts true. in the bible there's tons of ghosts in the bible yeah and and they're they're there to remind you how to, how to love yeah it's a good
0: good question yeah I have two comments and one other question I just came up on, because that <laughs> gentleman right there stole my question, but that's, that's okay. Um, um, one comment was that, uh, I think when you summed it up, I, I, you summed it up very well when you were like, um, in the layer word ghost stories have a point, versus, um, "Yeah, you know, like just me telling you about yeah, I saw a ghost, and yeah. I, I, think, yeah. I, I, think that, I think that really ties in with what he's saying about how you know that point is, usually there's a world, usually there's, you know, yeah. life like, that how little live a better life, I feel, you know? and that shows up throughout the cultures, and, um, I think that, yeah. when you said that, I don't know if that was your intent, but I think that really summed up, like, that point. <laughs> um, the other thing was, um, have you ever, do you have outtakes for the flopped interviews when you asked? Is it in the appendix or
1: anything? Like, no, that's a, a good... Uh, are, are there outtakes with the flopped interviews? Uh, there are on my computer, you know, because I, I save all the drafts and stuff, and, and there's there are, you know, like lots of flopped poems that, that didn't show up in there either. So um, I tend to write, like, 50% more than ever goes into a book just, you know, to put a kind of pressure on it. But... Um, and there were also, there were some great, I, I spent ages trying to write a poem about a plant, a real plant called a ghost orchid. And it's an amazing, amazing plant. And um, it was just too, it was too focused. I, I couldn't write about it. And um, so that there are lots of, um, and, but I think the outtakes need to stay out. You know? <laughs> uh, and I list in the back, uh, I list all the people whose, were, whose ideas? Because I would say I never used their exact words at all, but whose statements and ideas come um, come up are listed. So. All right,
0: now for my real question: mm. <laughs> um, what, what are your thoughts on reincarnation? You know, <laughs> Just it, it, was, out there. it
1: was it was really great be, uh, the, doing this project because because I was thinking about it and because I was asking other people it completely relieved me of the obligation of having any personal opinion on this whatsoever. <laughs> I didn't have to, you yeah. No, you know, and I think it's a really great question, and I think I would say um, that I believe in it, but I know I'm saying that because I want that to be true. I want to live again. Um, and, you know, how, how much of belief is desire, you know, and, 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 and enjoyment really Yeah. Somebody else? That was-